0: a safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie and welcome to Walking with Freya. Welcome back to Walking with Freya. First off, I just want to say that I hope all you mothers out there had a wonderful and relaxing Mother's Day and that you were able to do something that you wanted to do, something that you needed to do. For me, part of that was wandering the plant store and then coming home to garden, which was lovely. So in the episode today, it's a talk I had with Emily Felt. She is a mother to six-year-old Olivia who has Prader-Willi syndrome. Emily was living in Barcelona at the time of her daughter's birth, so it's interesting. We get a look at how another country handles the experience of a mother giving birth to a child with special needs. She also talks about how Olivia's birth and diagnosis affected her, and the grief that came from it, and how one session of therapy helped shift her outlook dramatically. We discuss the frustrations we have with doctors feeling like they need to harp on the negative aspects what needs to be fixed or treated, what's not working, what's going wrong. There's so much of that without the balance of what is working and what is going well. Emily is also in the process of creating something that I personally am very excited about. She calls it Food Gratitude, a positive psychology-inspired toolkit for families of kids with PWS. So this is a toolkit with a variety of activities and information. And this is to help families with prader Willy kids to create positive, anxiety-free experiences with food. And how to find and create a healthier relationship with food and with mealtime. And there's, there's more to it, but I'll let Emily tell you more about it. Also, there are a few references to a project of my own. I mentioned something about it before. It's a project that I'm starting work on. Because of my own experience with writing and telling our story and how that has helped me process this whole experience, I'm creating a writing journal for parents and caregivers to use for helping them process and understand the journey that we're all on. So I'll talk more about that later. I just wanted you to have a reference because I believe it comes up a couple times. For now, I hope that you find inspiration in this talk with Emily. We don't shy away from talking about the grief, but we're also very open about the hope and joy there is to be found. Now, as I was putting this episode together, I realized that I didn't ask for a contact for her that I can give out. So if you're interested in learning more about this toolkit or uh, where she is in the process of creating it, you can contact me at walkingwithfreya at gmail.com and I will get the message to her but I'll definitely be talking about it along the way. She's going to keep me informed and let me know how it's going. So you'll hear more about it uh, from the podcast. Until then, enjoy this talk with a wonderful, positive mama, who I think is doing great work out there in the Proud really community. And I'm grateful that she's here. And I'm grateful that you're here. So thanks. My name's Emily,
1: and I'm a writer and a health researcher, um, and a mom, obviously. (laughs) I've got two kids, and my oldest is 10. His name is Adria, and my youngest is Olivia. She's six, and she has Pader-Willi syndrome. Um, And I guess a little bit about me, you know, I've had a pretty international life, and lived. my husband's from Spain, so lived in Spain for seven years and uh, now we relocated to Northern California two years ago. Um, my daughter was born in Spain, so that was a bit of a challenge handling, you know, a child being born with a rare disease in a foreign country. Luckily, uh-huh. I spoke the language, but that doesn't mean that I was able to navigate the medical system very well. Right. Um, so, in, you know, a little bit about me, I just, I grew up in rural Colorado. Um, uh, my mom's from Oklahoma And kind of always was growing up in the mountains and doing outdoor activities and um, studied economics in school. And then began my travels and my journeys to South America, later Europe, living there, and then back to California.
0: Nice. Yeah. So you got around. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So you said your daughter, Olivia, and she's six. That's how old my daughter is. Um, Um. So... Yeah, that must have been hard to be in a foreign country. How was that? I mean, when did did you did you notice anything during during your pregnancy that maybe felt a little off or like you were, that was giving you concerns?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, but I didn't think much of it at the time. You know, I didn't really pay attention, but I I did notice that, you know, with my first baby, my son had been really active before he was born. He was constantly kicking me and I was all this you know an arm like jab me in the stomach and things like that and with my daughter I just wasn't feeling any movement and um every time I did feel a movement I'd say to you know my niece and my nephews hurry come feel the baby the baby's moving and the minute they would arrive there would be no more movement Mm -hmm. and it was a little weird but I I mentioned it to the doctor a couple times and she said oh no it's normal pregnancy don't worry babies are different and some of them move a lot more than others and my son had been a really hyperactive baby. So I thought, well, she's just like more calm soul, you know, but I, I did notice that there wasn't a lot of movement and, um, wasn't until the very end of the pregnancy that any doctor really paid much attention to what I was saying, nor I wasn't insisting on it either. Cause you know, I just assumed that everything was fine
0: and it was no big deal. Uh huh. Yeah. So then how was the birth? Was it, um, well, Olivia's
1: birth—it was very traumatic for me, actually. Uh, about six weeks, I want to say she was born six weeks early. Oh wow! And right in my third trimester, um, I went to the doctor to do the third trimester ultrasound, and the woman just froze, and she was kind of like a technician doing the ultrasound, and she didn't say anything to me. And I was laying there, you know, for about. 20 minutes and there was absolute silence and she just kept staring at the screen and then at one point she called somebody else into the room and she was kind of whispering to that person and I started to get really panicky uh-huh. I was wondering like what's as, going on
0: right as you would I mean
1: yeah <laughs> and um anyway so Eventually, I said, Well, you know, what's the problem? Should I be worried? Is something going on? Is something bothering you? And she said, Yeah, there is something wrong, but I don't know what it is.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. And I, of course, I said, Well, what? Like, what do you mean wrong? You know, and she said, Well, the baby's not moving. And also, the baby hasn't grown since the last uh, ultrasound. And I said, The baby's really, really small. And then she started asking me some questions, which made me kind of, you know, have even more anxiety she started saying you know do you see the hand you see how it's all clenched up do you see that you know even when i'm she was gonna putting this vibration tool against my stomach and doing it and the baby still wasn't moving and so anyway i left that appointment with a horrible anxiety and you know crying to my husband and really worried and um they Uh said they sent me upstairs to my regular doctor and she sat me down and she said look i'm I'm putting you in the high risk group. Uh, there's something really wrong. We don't know what it is, but all we can do is start doing tests. Um, so I said, okay, you know, there's nothing I could do. And then we started testing. We were just doing random testing for the next two weeks, everything the doctors could think of. We even ended up doing a full body, um, MRI, which was just crazy.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. We did all this, you know, testing and scanning for different syndromes and everything kept coming back negative. And the doctor sent us to a geneticist, which in retrospect was the worst thing they could have done because he just kind of stressed us out even more. He gave us, you know, a history of all the genetic problems that there might be. And just in the end said he didn't know what it was. Um, but it it really stressed us out. And then about two weeks later, we were, um, we were just doing routine heart monitoring at the hospital. And all of a sudden, a bunch of doctors came into the room. They said, you know, baby's heart rate's not going strong. We're going to do a C-section. So they did a C-section like 15 minutes later and she was born.
0: And she was six weeks early.
1: She was six weeks early. Yeah.
0: Wow. That does sound really traumatic.
1: Yeah, that was the hardest part for me during that time was handling my own worry and my own anxiety. Because I, you know, I didn't really want to even consider the idea of having a child with special needs. Like when I realized that might be something that was going to happen, I, I, felt like I didn't want that experience at, at all, and I felt unprepared, and like that just wasn't part of my life plan. Right. Um, I know it's not part of anybody's <laughs> life's plan. But I think this is part of the problem, you know, is like something that we think is really bad happens to us, and we just can't see the beauty in it. We can't see that this could be a good thing. Uh um that was definitely my experience yeah yeah so she um when she was born they took her to the you know neonatal infant care and she was there for about a month she was Uh born I think she weighed one and a half kilos which is I guess just around two or three pounds maybe Uh maybe not even three pounds she was very little she was just tiny um but she looked so perfect you know in the neonatal care Uh unit that I sort of started to hope that nothing was wrong. And she was just, it had been kind of like a a fluke with the doctors. And also people around me were telling me, oh, you know, those doctors, they don't know what they're talking about. Nowadays, (laughs) they just looking for this, looking for that, stressing out the mother, Uh Um, you know, the technicians, they, they were saying, you know, those ultrasound technicians, they just, they hate their jobs and they're just bored. And (laughs) you know i went along with it you know i said "Oof!" you know i was just thinking okay well maybe this is just a scare maybe this is she's just going to be little and premature and um Mm -hmm. but the geneticist we had seen he kept coming back a couple times to the neonatal infant care and he even came back with a student once and was pointing at some different aspects of our child and i wasn't there at the time but my husband was and um then a, a couple of weeks later the was like the doctor who was working in the neonatal unit. Um, she she had done a bunch of tests and nobody had really mentioned Prader-Willi syndrome except for the geneticist. And he said, yeah, but I don't think that's it, so don't worry. So I hadn't looked at any information about it. And she came back and she said, the only test we were waiting for is the Prader-Willi one. And she said, well, is your partner gonna come over later today to, you know, cause I was there with the baby. And I said, I don't know why. And she said, I wanna talk to you both. And I thought, oh my God, she's gonna tell us that this is come back positive. And I said, Why? Is it test positive? And then she said, Yeah, it is. So oh,
0: well. you know,
1: I was shocked and upset and I immediately went to call my husband and um left the baby in the neonatal care unit. I just couldn't I just couldn't stand staying there. I mean, I wanted to be with the baby, but I had to deal with my own emotions. So right. um that was that was basically how we found out about it.
0: Well, I found out uh, a phone call on a Friday night, <laughs> so my doctor yeah. called me, and my husband wasn't here so and the, the first per- even worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was you know it was the first person to walk into the room was my seven year old daughter, so she got to comfort me for a moment, so yeah, it was a little rough, you know, I think sometimes the doctors are just they don't think things through they're so focused on the on this idea that we have to have all of this information and um, mm-hmm. you know, without kind of thinking about the space that we're in, you know, emotionally or, or the kind of support that we have in the moment. So, so did you have family in Spain at all or was it just your husband's family?
1: Um, I didn't, I didn't have any of my own family, but I, I did have my husband's family. And of course, you know, my son, my son was four at the time. Uh So yeah, my, my mom happened to be visiting when um, she was visiting when Olivia was born, but she was not there when we got the diagnosis. I didn't really have any members of my own family, but um, yeah, I felt, I did feel I had, you know, plenty of support there. I just, it was definitely rough being in a different culture and not being able to reach out to other, you know, American women, maybe in my situation, or, you know, support groups
0: and things like that. Uh-huh. Did they, how were the, the services? I mean, did they give you the diagnosis and then start sending you to all these different specialists or therapists and, or was it just kind they of? Did. They did? Yeah, okay. they
1: did. I mean, in retrospect, I, I think it was great that my daughter was born in Spain. Um, They have a great healthcare system, universal health system. And when we got the diagnosis, they immediately, um, they did a few things, which were great, but they immediately started physical therapy. And they also started getting us set up with different specialists at the children's hospital. So, you know, by the time she was out of the neonatal unit and back home, she already had a couple appointments a week for physical therapy um, we had a, you know, a neurologist, an endocrinologist, and we had all of these different specialties. We also had a cardiologist because she was born with a bit of a heart defect, which later cleared up, but we had all of that stuff and we didn't really have to search it out. You know, it just was part of the system. They, the doctors funneled us right into the system. And so all we had to do was kind of like follow instructions, go to the appointments, uh-huh. and then they would set up the next ones and tell us what to do, which was really helpful because I think at the time we were both just, we had a hard time getting through our days emotionally and we did, we didn't need to be on top of it, having to compare doctors or fight with medical insurance. Right. Like all we could do was go to the hospitals and you know, all our appointments were in one location. All the doctors talked to each other. They were all part of the team. Oh, and wow. also the hospital had 30 or 40 other cases of Prader-Willie's. So it was like a good place to be.
0: Wow. Oh, that's a lot. It seems like 30 or
1: 40. It really is. Yeah. Well, it's a a central regional hospital. So they kind of got kids from all over the region.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Well, that part sounds sounds great that you had, that the resources were so readily available. And
1: yeah, there was, there's really was a lot of resources. And one of the greatest things that this hospital did was, um, so the woman who, you know, broke the news to us, She was actually a really wonderful, compassionate doctor, and I could tell how hard it was for her, you know, to tell us. We had kind of bonded with each other over this month in the NICU, Uh and she was having a really hard time breaking the news, and um, she wanted to help us a lot. So she she told us that four years prior, they had had another case of PWS, and she wanted us to meet that family. So, um, I mean, I don't think this is the kind of thing that could have happened in the United States with all the privacy concerns and everything, Uh but we said we wanted to meet them. And so, like in two days, she set up a meeting at the hospital with us, with them, and with their son, who at the time was four. And we met this family, and that was, it was like so helpful for us to meet another family, see how great and normal they were living, and also meet their son, who was just, totally adorable and fun and like really lovable you know and so that was like for me that was like a a total shift in my mindset about how I might be able to live my life in a way that this could just be a normal part of it or even a good part of it that was really helpful and I'm grateful to the hospital for for being able to do that because otherwise I just had in my mind all these crazy thoughts and I didn't know what was what was true and what wasn't and I was just imagining things in my head
0: that
1: uh-huh. um, I had no idea, you know, what my daughter would be like. And it was a, it was a hard time and it was good to connect with, with other families in the same situation.
0: Yeah. That's great that they did that. I'm wondering yeah. if, yeah, I mean, if there's gotta be maybe a different way that doctors can give that news of the diagnosis, because it it yeah. is like such a dreaded thing. and It negates all of the, kind of the, all of the positive sides of it or all the the joys that are possible, you know, when it's just kind of this doom and gloom moment. And it's nice to have a glimpse like you had into the the reality of the future and how much happiness and sweetness can be there. And when we're, you know, because we're in that, in that space, it's hard to find it. I mean, here they, you know, they just said, don't get on the internet. Don't do research. You know, if you do just go to this one site. Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: I. It's hard not to get on the internet, you know. After getting <laughs> some, you know, because you're like it's the only source of information you really have, and it's like half of it's totally wrong. too, to uh, So, it's, um, it's a real challenge, I think, for people not to go straight to the internet. I definitely tried not to go to the internet because I was worried about my ability to function. Um, but we did end up delving into kind of a textbook, which wasn't helpful either, you know. Um, and I think just the medical perspective in general of disability and especially genetic um, concerns, it's just like a very negative perspective. You know, everything's presented as a problem. Uh-huh. Um,
0: well, because like, that's really, would you say that's because that's what the medical field is looking at, what they have to treat. Yeah. And so they're not looking at the other sides of it. So yeah, we I mean, for years I carried around the emergency booklet with me and I remember yeah, you know, like the you know, Freya of vomiting or having a fever and you know having intestinal issues like normal intestinal issues, but they all are in the medical booklet as like possible life threatening conditions yeah. and uh, so she's had yeah. to the emergency room a few times before we figured out, okay, like this just doesn't apply to her
1: yeah it <laughs> it is it's they do really. I mean, and I think they're trying to cover all their bases, you know, but the downside of it is that it really does scare you a lot. And you kind of, I find in my case, for a while, I carried around all these negative emotions, all this fear and guilt. And um, I think it's easy for families to do that. Because, you know, every time you have an encounter with a medical professional, which is like all the time, you're always being reminded of, you know, everything that could go wrong, or what's not working properly, kind of, I remember the first year, I had a constant fear of going to doctor, because I was just afraid of getting more bad news, Uh uh-huh. um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect every time we'd go, and I thought, oh, they're gonna tell us there's something else wrong, or they're gonna not be happy with her development in this right. way, or they're gonna tell us that she should be further ahead, or, um, so that was, that was, like, a very real, fear for me and it was it's hard to deal with other aspects of life at the same time as all that
0: Uh uh-huh yeah it can be really overwhelming and especially when you have other kids in the mix I mean how was your how if you don't mind me asking how was it on your son in this, this especially that first part when it was so uh so new and so many doctors well
1: I think it was I think it was really hard for him um I mean on one hand he kind of felt it was normal in a way and he was really excited when his sister came home and everything but he was too little to really understand everything we were going through was just four years old uh-huh. um, but it I think it was hard for him you know other kids in his class their mom had had a baby the baby had come home right away and our baby hadn't come home for a month so that was one thing you know and then there was a lot of doctors and um a lot of medications, and I think he kind of just felt like all of that was normal for a while hmm. and then at some point he just began to realize that his sister was a little bit different from the other kids her age who were the sisters and brothers of his friends and so he asked questions about that and um, I mean looking back at it I think it was hard for him and still is hard for him actually but at the same time it's it's really given him an opportunity to become like a really well-rounded person. You know, he's become more mature because of it. And he's, he definitely knows that everybody's different and his sister has this issue and that's okay. This is the way it is and that she's a totally valuable human being and he loves her. So um, I, I think he's okay, you know, in the sense that it hasn't been like a very negative experience for him, but it has been hard, definitely been a challenge. And there was times when I think we also felt guilty because we had to do so, we had to spend so much more time with Olivia, you know, between all of her therapies and everything that automatically he feels as though he's somehow not getting as much of us or he's sort of got the short end of the stick.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty common, <clears throat> probably. Yeah. So, how is Olivia? Doing these days, how I mean, you said when did you move back to California? Or I uh, moved
1: about two years ago. Gee, okay, yeah,
0: so she, and, um, so they were great with the services. Uh, you were in Spain the whole time, and yeah, the services were just coming. And
1: yeah, the services were good. I mean, we had a bit of a problem getting growth hormone because it wasn't approved there. Oh, okay. Um, so <laughs> that was a big stressor for me at first because I you know, given I have this background in health research, I automatically looked at PubMed and I realized that kids in the US, babies were getting growth hormone. They weren't giving it in Spain till age two. Uh So I was worried about that. And um, we immediately asked if we could get it, but it was hard being in the bureaucracy, trying to get a medication that wasn't approved by the the health system. Uh So we spent she didn't end up taking it until she was about eight months. And the reason is that we couldn't find a private doctor willing to prescribe it, given her um, her heart complications.
0: So um, we went right.
1: to a private endocrinologist. And this woman, we had heard from other doctors that she had a couple of patients with PWS that she was prescribing growth hormone for outside of the health system. Um, and since our hospital was public, they couldn't do it for us because it wasn't approved. So we went to see her and she looked she you know did a sort of a workup of olivia and she said she just wasn't comfortable giving it given the heart issue uh-huh. and so we asked her you know if we can get a second opinion or if we can get someone to go along with pete would be willing to do it she said she didn't know so at that point i was doing you know my research on the internet and i saw that there was this amazing doctor that everyone was talking about called dr miller
0: yes And i was like oh
1: <laughs> maybe this woman could help us so i just sent her an email saying hi, you know, I'm American, but I'm living in Spain and my daughter has PWS and we can't get growth hormone. Please, is there anything you can do? Can you help us? And she, um, she said yes. And she ends up flying to Florida to see her with Olivia when she was about six months old. And she told us, you know, that she would do anything possible to get Olivia growth hormone. She said she'd work with the doctor in Spain to do it. And if, if nobody would at the end, she would just FedEx it herself. <laughs> So uh, we went back to Spain with a letter from her, and she got directly in touch with the endocrinologist that we have been working with. And she convinced this woman to give the growth hormone to Olivia. And I think this woman was really impressed that there's this famous American doctor, you know, <laughs> working directly with her. She was happy. So she, she agreed to do it. She agreed to prescribe it. And so we ended, up, we ended up getting it and giving it to her starting when she was about eight months old and i have to say once she started getting it everything changed like she started growing and she just started developing so much more quickly than she had been and so it was it made us really happy <laughs> we were just thrilled and a couple of years later they ended up changing their policy anyway and now they do give it to to the babies in spain with the growth hormone. so oh okay. good that was like our first you know victory <laughs> yeah
0: Well, I mean, I was here in California. It was really difficult for us even. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I mean, my daughter didn't get her diagnosis until three and a half months, but yeah, the whole trying to get the growth hormone thing, she didn't end up getting her first shot until she was 11 months old. And I remember that feeling like the countdown, you know, like, no, she's got to start it before she turns one or she loses. I know. (laughs) It's just like, you're really playing on to certain things and your anxiety but
1: yeah yeah it's that's that's a hard thing you know it's it's hard to see that we like the parents you know what should be done but then you have to go through this complicated system to get everything in place and it sometimes it can just feel like roadblocks you know Uh I was um I so when we got Olivia's growth hormone I had been working with a therapist in Spain who's actually the person who got me interested in positive psychology and um different more holistic healing techniques but so I was personally just doing great at that point and I had so much energy to handle everything that came up with Olivia so it was like every time somebody said no or a doctor was like negative I just said okay you know and I just let it go and I just started on the next step whatever I had to do the next step to get her what she needed I just just like kept taking the step um and it was a it was an interesting experience because, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to the doctors at all. It was like, I was just going through the process and whatever I had to do, if it was a letter or, you know, get some approval for something, I just, I like put all my attention on just doing it and just getting it done. Uh-huh. And I just, I think one of the reasons it it actually worked out for us is because we were just willing to keep moving forward, you know, like uh-huh. whatever we had to do, you're we just like, okay, how are we going to do it? Let's figure out a way. Let's let's see, you know, and if we have to go to Florida, like, let's just let's get on a plane and go, you know? Right. So it was, um, I'm happy and thankful that I I was emotionally feeling good at that point. Cause I think that's what allowed me to get all of that stuff that my daughter needed, you know, set in place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you're not kind of wrapped up in all of those, uh, you know, dealing with all of that emotion and the grief, it's easier right. to move forward. Right. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Miller was instrumental in in Freya getting her growth hormone too. Like there was a letter from her to <laughs> one of the specialists <laughs> that was the holdup, you know, and because they yeah. weren't listening to me and what I knew. That's the thing that's that can be really frustrating. Is I have found sometimes speaking with these doctors and you, like you as the parent, are the specialist with your child's disorder, but. And you're having right. to teach them and you're having to deal with that bureaucracy and, and their, their holdups, even though you know more than they do. But
1: Yeah, yeah, you really do. I mean, I wish sometimes things would, would go easier. You know, it's like the bureaucratic nature of everything just means that it all goes so slowly. And, you know, those first two years are so important, really, to just get everything moving and start doing intervention. So, I agree that the, you know, as nice and helpful as the doctors are, and we do need them. Um, there's definitely some aspects of the system that just make everything like a burden. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm happy that you said that you also used help from Dr. Miller, but, um, I, you know, being in Spain, I, I just assumed that everyone in the United States was having like this really easy time getting the <laughs> hormones because there was all this research on it. And there were doctors like Dr. Miller who were actually caring, you know, and um, and later when we did come to the States and I started sharing, you know, experiences with some other families, I could also see that there are just as many difficult aspects of the system here, probably even more so than Spain. But I mean, you know, I'll always be grateful to Dr. Miller. I I feel like those few people there are like her who are just really love the kids and they're willing Uh to do anything, you know, she's willing to do just about anything possible to get them help. I mean, that really just makes life so much easier. And I'm just, I'm thankful that there are some doctors like her around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She is definitely an amazing woman. And uh, Mm -hmm. our first, appointment with her i mean the first conversation i had with her was over the phone i left a message with her secretary and dr miller herself called me back the next day and, and spoke with me for like 25 minutes about supplements and growth hormone and I, mean, I was just like i i think i hung up the phone and just cried like oh, you know just so so full of gratitude that there was somebody like her yeah. in the world yeah, she, I cried
1: the first time I saw her too. I cried in <laughs> her office because she was the first doctor that actually had good news for us. I yeah. mean, she was the first person that said, like, look, this, your daughter's going to be great. She was like, you know, these kids are doing amazing things and this is your daughter and she's going to be absolutely great. And she'll, she may seem like she's behind other kids, but she's going to get there. She was like, you're just going to have faith in her. You're going to do everything she needs. And she's going to get there. She's like, I'm going to make sure of it. And it was like, to hear that from a doctor was like, oh, thank God. Thank God somebody's like committed to helping me. And somebody sees this in a positive way, you know, because from everyone else, it's always sort of doom and gloom, like you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's just an amazing human being. And, but I think what's interesting is like it's so amazing what she does. And yet it's also so easy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like how easy would it be for other doctors to take the same approach, you know, just saying, look, I'm going to stick my neck out. Like I'm going to do whatever I can for these kids. Um, uh-huh. you know, I'm going to love these kids regardless and just help them. Um, you know what she's doing. is just, it's rare, but it, it should be so simple. <laughs>
0: uh, huh. So, yeah, just your transition to California from Spain. How was that?
1: Um, it was actually pretty tough. It was good, but it wasn't easy. Um, you know, I one of the things I wanted to do for a while, I come back to California when we were in Spain. That was kind of part of my plan. Um, I didn't necessarily want to, you know, come back forever and whatnot, but I wanted to, I didn't feel like my time in the States was over, and I wanted to come back, but I was. I was absolutely terrified of the issue of getting Olivia care, you know, finding new doctors, um, getting her into a school where she would do well, and also, you know, getting medical insurance. So the whole process of coming back took longer than expected. And I just, I was clear I wanted to come back with a job. So, um, you know, I spent like over a year interviewing for jobs with no, no options to actually have one that provided health insurance. So finally, I got an offer for a part-time job with benefits and so that's when we actually made the jump. And it was it was definitely challenging. Um, I'm glad I did it for many reasons, but it was hard. And Olivia's been great. I mean, she's adapted and adjusted really well and she kind of flows naturally between the two cultures. And same with my son, which is great because it, you know, it just goes to show that our kids are so much more resilient than we are in a way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it was, it was hard for me setting up everything new, finding all of the therapists and also it's more expensive and you, I've had countless fights with, you know, insurance over the hormone and the prescriptions and referrals and this and that. So it, mm. in the States, the difference is it's definitely taken a lot more of my personal time.
0: Just yeah. medical
1: management is kind of like a, at least a part-time, maybe more job with, you know. Uh, any, I guess any kind of chronic condition in a family, it just takes a lot more work. So that's been tough, but um, I think, you know, I was really worried before coming back that it would be hard on my kids or traumatizing, or it would be difficult for them, but they've both actually benefited a lot by seeing new things, meeting new people, learning a new language. Um, I think overall it's been beneficial and stretch stretched them a little bit and who they are and their capacities. And I kind of think that's a good thing because, yeah. you know, as parents, we tend to want to protect them all the time, make life really easy, make sure they don't have any problems.
0: <laughs> but then they're not growing and, and learning.
1: Right. Then they're not growing. Exactly. So, um, so it's been interesting. And, you know, it's provided me countless opportunities to practice being patient with people like school mm-hmm. system, for example, with Olivia, um, there's a it's a more individualistic society so there's a little bit less inclusion for her just in social life Uh and so you know we've had to had to work more with the school and educate people more about the situation and help them through their frustrations and things like that so it's been like a learning experience
0: yeah how so does olivia speak spanish
1: She's so in Barcelona, which is where my husband's from, um, they actually have a, their own language. It's called Catalan uh-huh. and they do speak Spanish there too. So Olivia speaks Catalan and English. Okay. Yeah. Both my kids speak both, but um, Olivia, her language development was the area that she's been most behind on. Uh huh. So she's six right now and she's finally chatting, she finally becomes like a chatty kid because up till age 4 she um she was not really talking. And so I also had one of those moments where for a minute I thought, "Oh my god, is my child ever going to speak?" And then I had to just let go of that. I thought, "Well, it's not my responsibility to force my child to speak. You know, I can just help her as much as I can, get her speech therapy, but I can't can't force the child to to be at a level she's not." So,
0: right.
1: Luckily she did start speaking, but it took it took a while. Um and it was a source of it was a source of pain for us, I think, for a while too, just thinking, you know, when you get this diagnosis, immediately you start hoping that your child's gonna be the most lightly affected case ever.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> and 'cause you're like taking some solace in the fact that there are kids that are doing so great and you're thinking, Well, mine's probably gonna do some better, hopefully. And then um over time you realize that, you know, some areas you're doing much better and other areas other kids are doing better
0: right
1: it's like okay you know with olivia physically she's done really great um she doesn't have any issues with scoliosis she's really strong her muscle tone looks pretty normal and she runs and jumps and walks on a balance beam and does all kinds of things but her speech is has been quite delayed despite the fact that she loves to chatter you know it's hard to understand her Uh and she's six but she's not talking like a six-year-old so So that's been a challenge for us. But on the other hand, you know, I feel like uh, one of the blessings of the situation is having all these opportunities to just realize how you can be happy despite different circumstances, you know? So I don't think her language has really put much of a dent in the kind of life that we're living. You know, we just, we just have to work with it. That's all. She normally makes herself understood to people in different ways. If they Uh don't understand what she's trying to say verbally you know she's got a lot of other mechanisms and she's very intuitive too so she manages to communicate one way or another
0: yeah well that's great to you know she's teaching other people that it's not just talking that's part of communication you know she's forcing other people to to grow and learn also
1: yeah especially us <laughs> yeah <laughs> more than anyone
0: <laughs> yeah <clears throat> we have uh we have one a a daughter that that's younger than Freya by 16 months. And so sometimes she's our translator. I mean, I can generally understand Freya, but sometimes I just, I'm just, I'm not getting what she's saying. And so I have to ask Rona, what is she, what is she saying? (laughs) She tells us. Oh yeah. (laughs) So that works out pretty well. But so I think now's a good time to um, talk about your, your project, what you are creating.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this project. So (laughs) keep me in check if I tend to go overboard. Um, But I just want to talk briefly. One of the things that really changed my whole life perspective when Olivia was born was that um, I sought help from a therapist because emotionally I was doing so badly. Uh And um, I had this experience of like going to see someone for help and basically completely doing a 180 in my view on my life within like two hours so it's a really dramatic experience for me (laughs) and at first I thought oh my god this is magic you know like this is absolute magic and then later I started to learn more about how these things work Um, but anyway the gist of it is you know I went to see this therapist and she was a holistic energy-based healer who also um, a lot of her techniques are related to positive psychology which now I've actually been studying and so forth But I went into her office and I sort of told her everything that was going on with me and how, you know, about the baby and all these things. And she just had me sit down and do some really simple exercises where I would kind of dissolve the negative energies that were in my system and then put in place positive ones and focus on the positive things in my life. So we went through this process and I I just came out of her office and I felt like a brand new person. And I suddenly just felt like... I could just see that everything was going to be okay. And my life felt better. And I felt this huge sense of love for Ollie and just for the whole opportunity of of it all, you know? So that was kind of how it started. That was sort of the genesis of all of it. And that's not to say that I didn't go through some really hard times after that, because I definitely did. I was up and down. Uh I kept working on these tools. And so, you know, every time something would come up, and I would get down, I'd sort of implement some of these tools that she had taught me and I continued to work with her over some time. Um, So anyway, the gist of it is that, you know, you basically intentionally implement positive uh, strategies into your life in order that you have a more positive experience and you boost your energy level and then that helps you, you know, sort of handle things and you start to feel better. so when I came to California and I started to sort of figure, try to figure out what I want to do and what sort of work I want to do, I was very clear that I just wanted to be able to help other people sort of flesh out that same process. Mm-hmm. And so I did a training, um, a certification in applied positive psychology with an organization called the Flourishing Center, and we were taught all of these different science-based tools for promoting promoting positive emotions. And I loved this class. I thought it was amazing. And it was kind of the first time in my life I realized that it wasn't silly to sort of take a positive approach. It's actually responsible and there's science to back up all of the changes you can make in your mind and body if you do so. So um, we had, you know, part of our training was that we needed to implement a project in life sort of to give back, you know, using our knowledge and everything. And I really wanted to give back to the prader Willie community. So I, um, I came up with this idea, why not help families of kids with potter willy syndrome um, sort of boost their level of functioning by using some of these tools. And some of the tools that I chose to include in my toolkit, for example, which is called Food for Gratitude, um, include things like uh, fostering gratitude in everyday life, setting up uh, routines and rituals around meal mealtime, <clears throat> excuse me, and sort of other events that are family-oriented, and also working with beliefs. So um, when, when I first found out about Olivia's diagnosis, one of the things I worked on a lot was beliefs, because looking back, I realized that one of the reasons it was so hard for me to handle was because it sort of, um, it played on all these really deep beliefs I had about life. You know, like, I didn't realize how many um, <laughs> how many criteria I had my child before she was even born, you know, like, I just assumed she'd go to college. And I just assumed that she'd have a million friends. And uh-huh. I just assumed that she'd be this and that. And then so when she was born with this kind of horrible condition, suddenly, it was like, it put all these beliefs in the question as, you know, I'm not going to be happy because my child's not going to kind of meet my expectations kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and so working with these beliefs helped me to sort of let go of them and realize that uh, I could be open to whatever she's like. I can be open to whoever she is meant to become and she can meet her own potential. So anyway, I had this experience of working with beliefs at a very deep level. And then I also had the training about, you know, learning the practical mechanisms for working with beliefs in everyday life. Um, and I wanted to combine all of these tools in a toolkit for families of kids with Father Willie syndrome. So I um, I have the curriculum written out, and I'm currently in the process of trying to raise a little bit of funds, just so I can pay for things like graphic design and layout. And I hope that I'll be able to make this resource available freely, both on the web and in a sort of a printed, downloadable format, like a booklet that people can just download and use.
0: Okay, great, yeah, I'm so excited about this. And so I was reading uh, what you sent. So there's going to be some journaling, and the, the meal plans the or the the meal chart, right?
1: Yeah, uh-huh. we're gonna so um, a lot of the a lot of the elements of the toolkit, you know there's I'm gonna educate families about some of the science behind it, so there'll be a section that's more um, educational so that people can learn about the science, and then they'll have practical ways to translate that into their daily activities. And then I think by having journaling pages, it'll give people the opportunity to sort of record what comes up for them, what their experience is like, and work through it. And there's actually studies that show that um, writing down good things, like as a practice, actually generates positive emotional well-being. And this well-being can even extend for a period of time after you stop doing the writing. Uh-huh. So um, each element of this toolkit is definitely uh, it's science-based. And I'm going to inform families too about the, the studies and what were the results and why this is a positive thing. So, it's, you know, until I started learning about positive psychology, I kind of felt like, well, it's journaling your thing. That's great. And journaling has always been my thing. Uh-huh. Um, I've been a writer for a while, so I'd always loved journaling. But, you know, studies show that this can be really beneficial for people, not just because they like it, but because it actually fosters positive emotions, just sitting down and writing about positive stuff um and a main focus of the toolkit's gratitude because gratitude is one of the sort of intervention areas that's been shown to really um really promote positive experiences you know given my experience and what I've learned I thought this could be really helpful for for families with kids with PWS I mean especially in light of all of the negativity that we're exposed to all the time you know just in society all the challenges that our kids face I feel like we really need this really intentional way to take care of our own health you know both mentally and just emotionally and spiritually and Uh be able to take care of our kids
0: I'm really looking forward to it coming out yeah
1: Um, when I was when I was developing my project proposal for this toolkit I did some research online to try and find out you know what literature is available on this type of support for families of kids with special needs or just you know, caregivers of people with disabilities yeah. in general. Yeah. And there's really only a few studies that even tackle this at all. Um, you know, more than anything, there's kind of assessments that this is a group of people that really need support and aren't really getting it through the medical system. Right. So uh, that's why I feel like this is kind of this is a powerful direction to be going to, to try and give people support and help them. Yeah, definitely. It's one that hasn't been explored too much in the literature. And I think that in that sense, you know, these types of interventions have something to offer, because what Mm -hmm. are you going to really, you know, when you have questions this deep that come up, like what comes up when a member of your family, you realize you're going to be caring for them in this way. Uh You know, I mean, what kind of support can really make you feel better besides really finding a sense of meaning and joy? I mean, that's really one Uh of the only things I think that's going to really be helpful. Yeah because all the standard measures in our society of what it means to be happy, a lot of them aren't going to apply to these situations.
0: Right. Well, and I think also something that brings your consciousness to it, because I think as parents, you know, when, as you, as you call it medical management, you know, that we, t- we spend so much time in that realm and and caring for our kids and finding what it is that they need. And, and the next, next thing and, and researching supplements and all that stuff and how much time are we really taking to process I mean how much time do we even have to process mm-hmm. you know sometimes it's it's you know you deal with one thing and then another issue comes up and so you got to deal with that and so right. I think um, I mean that's one of my intentions with this project and it sounds like this will really help people kind of just take a moment and you know just take a breath and think how am I going to move forward or, just have any kind of like consciousness about it and the, the process and not just moving from one issue to the next. I love the, I love the, uh, the gratitude part and the ritual around mealtime. I,
1: yeah, I think for me, this is really powerful because, um, you know, I think like you said, it helps us to just be present. And I feel like we already do have the, the components of joy in our daily life. You know, these kids are, they're amazing human beings. They're yeah. very courageous. And, but it's just like, we need to just take time to notice it and kind of like call it out and say what it is. And Uh especially at mealtime, you know, that's a a time when many people, whether they have a faith or not, they take time to be present with each other, connect, um, appreciate the food, you know, and yet for us with kids with CWS, you know, we have so much stress around food, (laughs) Uh Um, (laughs) you know, and we're constantly monitoring it and worrying about it. And, you know, all the guidelines that instruct us what to do you know, it's very little of them are really focused on elements of appreciation or gratitude. And I think that these things can still be implemented in our food routine. It's just, Mm -hmm. we have to make it a bit of a priority. We Uh have to do it a little bit intentionally, you know, because food, I mean, it's, you know it's not a bad thing for our kids it's actually it's like they need it to live just like everyone you know it's nourishing it's wholesome it's good for them um we just have this extra added element you know of like they can't be in charge of it (laughs) right um and they get obsessive about it and so forth but all of that doesn't mean that that we have to carry around that energy you know we still can find ways to implement gratitude and be thankful for it and also just foster positive experiences when we all sit down at the table together, which is what I'm, you know, it's kind of what the focus of the toolkit is. I, I, my other hobby has always been cooking. <laughs> so nice. I was happy to realize after Olivia was born that I would not have to give up my
0: passion for cooking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to hone that skill, you know, you get to. Yeah, um,
1: exactly. It's an opportunity to learn to cook better, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, when she was born and I was I was really a quite accomplished baker, I had this vision of my daughter and I baking together. And then, Aww. you know, suddenly it was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, but later I started cooking differently and I realized, oh, I, I feel better and I want to eat this way anyway. <laughs> so it, it still was a good thing. And we still bake from time to time. You know, we we still bake and she's six right now. So she gets to watch, you know, she doesn't get to do it, but she gets to watch or help out a little bit. Um, And as you said, with Olivia too, we've, we've seen some, you know, there's more food uh, anxiety and things like that. So we have Uh to kind of always be back and forth between letting her help and not going overboard. Um, So we do what we can. We sort of have a happy medium and we'll just have to see where it takes us.
0: Yeah. Well, and I can see uh, with your toolkit that, I mean, maybe our kids need, I mean, they they need it more than anybody to have these rituals around mealtime mm-hmm. or this gratitude, you know, and have this like specific beginning and ending and have this reverence for this, this moment. And then maybe it'll make, maybe it will lessen the anxiety and maybe it will make it more clear because that's one of the things they say, right? They really need to have the schedule and they need to know what's coming Mm -hmm. up next. And so if there is kind of this clear, clearly defined space when we have our meal, when we eat our food and then move on. Yeah.
1: And yeah, I think that was one of my intentions too, was, you know, all of this research that I've been studying in terms of positive psychology, I mean, they, it just shows changes in people's brains based on these emotions. And I, yeah, I mean, we know something's not going on quite right in our kids' brains, but I don't feel that it necessarily, I mean, we know it doesn't inhibit them from being happy uh-huh. or feeling joy because, I mean, I don't know about Freya, your daughter, but Olivia's like extremely joyful in so many ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh um, yeah, no, Freya and, too. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and like, um, so, you know, I thought, well, I mean, they can, they do have food anxiety. It It is a source of stress for them, but we can, temper that out a little bit, not by just giving them free reign, but just integrating, you know, rituals and routines and gratitude about, you know, food is still good for them. It's just, it has to be controlled. (laughs) You know, our truth, I feel like is multifaceted. It's the positive and it's the grief. I mean, the grief, you know, we went through a lot of grief when Olivia was born, but actually wouldn't give it up, you know, given what we've learned and how much better life has become because of the things we've learned. Like I, I wouldn't say that it didn't serve a really important purpose.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't expect to go through life just easy breezy. Everything's happy, you know, it's, There's going to be pain along the way. Otherwise you can't really appreciate the, you know, I mean, maybe we, Need that time in the beginning where we're so terrified and it's just looming, and you know, the future looks so dismal, so that when yeah. they get a little older and they laugh the first time, or you know, when I mean, just the I mean that when Freya first started walking at two and a half, you know like yeah. <laughs> it was amazing, it was so and we were all so excited, you know it's just that and because it was such a build up, and there was so much worry before that, so it's kind of like yeah. there's a big payoff from that in a way,
1: oh yeah, totally, it is a huge payoff, you know, and <laughs> I think for me too, just there's this huge payoff to like letting go of these deep held beliefs, you know, like I mean, I was thinking for a while, oh my God, like. I just can't live if if my child's going to live with me forever. Like, who wants that? Uh-huh. But then I was like, it felt so freeing to be able to let go and say, you know what, I'm here to be of service. Like, if that's what my service looks like, then that's what it looks like. You know, in our yeah. society, it's somehow not okay to be caring for someone who's young. It's only okay once they're old and frail, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And it's like, that's just something we've invented that makes it okay or not. So I've found like this huge... Happiness in being able to take my own stereotypes and just chuck them out the window, you know, and say, you know what, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna think that way anymore because my life might be different and I I still can be happy. Uh huh. So yeah, it's like it offers endless opportunities. One of these (laughs) very difficult grieving experiences at the beginning, it can be beautiful.
0: Well, I have found, and I can pinpoint a few moments on this journey, and um, I. I found that there have been specific moments where I've just had that, that, that epiphany and that enlightenment. And it's funny that I have to like keep having it or at, on some level, but of just like having that moment of realizing, you know what, we don't have to struggle and fight to meet those milestones because that's just not, you know, it's just not going to happen that way. I feel like for a while I was trying to get her on this path, trying to rush her along the path so she could catch up to her peers And then that was um, the first time I had this realization. It was so liberating. I'm just realizing, you know what? Like, she may never catch up, quote unquote, catch up to her peers. Like, she's who she is, and she's gonna go at her own pace. And we're just gonna have as much fun and and love it as much as we can. So,
1: yeah, that's a great attitude. And it's true, it is really freeing. You know, it's like letting the person be who they are, too. right? Right. Letting go of this idea that we need to force them to be different than they are, you know. And the thing is, they do, they do do most of these milestones on their own, you know, when they're ready, when it's time, like uh-huh. they do it in their way. And it's kind of the right way for them. So, yeah, I feel like this is something as his parents, we we just kind of constantly have to come back to because there's always another milestone out there in the future to be worked right. towards. You know? Well, that's- remember that it's okay that these kids can also you know, some of the milestones they do catch up and others maybe they won't and they're gonna do what's right for them.